Welcome to the Cattle Call Podcast. We are studying another episode with Jared Jaborek here. Uh, before I call Jared, let me go ahead and call Brooke. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Great. So, hello, Jared. Hi, Pedro. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Okay. Thank you very much for participating with us in our last uh, episode. Uh, today, we are going to talk about a little bit uh, to talk more about the research, some research that you have done. Uh, so, Brooke, what are the questions that we have today uh, to, to Jared? So to start off with, could you just tell us a little bit about um, some of the research you've done just looking at beef on dairy crosses, um, just specifically what kind of research you've done, and then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some specific research a little later. Yeah, so... For a master's slash PhD project, uh, when I started grad school, one of the first projects I was put on was investigating um, how a beef on dairy crossbreeding scheme would work. Um, in that um, instance, it was with uh, Jersey cattle. So one of the problems in the industry was that Jersey bull calves were of little to no value. Um, I had producers telling me that um, one lady in particular said, I got a nickel sent to me in an envelope <laughs> for a bull calf that she sent to the sale barn. So there, it, it was an issue in the industry of what to do with these calves. Um, and we didn't want it to become a welfare issue. So looking at different opportunities to how can we add value to these calves? And one of the ideas was, well, can we cross breed them with a uh, beef sire? So we investigated breeding with Four different, um, four different briefs. Well, we bred them to either uh, purebred jerseys as our control. We had ang an Angus um, treatment as well, black Angus. We had Sim Angus and we had red Wagyu. So we had a couple of different breeds that we were looking at to see, okay, how do these different breeds cross with the jersey? Um, we did two years worth of um, cattle or two, two batches of uh calves um and we ran them through the feedlot on a corn silage uh base diet um or finishing diet with a whole shell corn i think eventually um one summer we did have to um we switched over to some soy hulls because we ran out of corn silage but for the most part that was the um, diet that we were feeding those cattle um on slats um then we harvested them at our um, university meat laboratory and we did a full cutout on those cattle to look at what is the actual yield coming from these cattle um, as far as how much meat are we getting back bone, boneless retail um, cuts are we getting back so the meat how much fat are we getting back and how much bone are, is this carcass actually producing so that was very interesting to see what are the percentages and how does that differ um, with different breeds of cattle one of the most notable findings um, that maybe some people knew um, back in the day from some older research is that Jersey cattle carry a lot of internal fat, a lot of kidney fat. Um, so we were able to do a full um, carcass evaluation or fabrication on those cattle. We also did some fatty acid analysis to look at, are there some different health um, or potential health claims that people could be making? Um, and um, did some tenderness um, evaluation as well. So through that study, um, we were able to see that crossbreeding actually improved 
our feedlot performance with the beef sires. Um, for the most part, the majority of them were selected for um, to to deposit marbling, I would say, rather than promote growth in that instance. We were trying to target more of a, a value added or a niche market type claim, um, a claim for those cattle. So um, we did see um, an improvement in average daily gain and um, I believe efficiency as well for some of those sires. Um, we actually reduced the number of days on feed that the cross is needed relative to the purebred jerseys as well, which we know is going to cut our um, costs in the feedlot as far as how much feed they're eating in total and yardage. So there were differences there. And then when it came to carcass um, characteristics, we were able to add more muscle, but maybe not where you might be thinking. Because um, when we measured the ribeye area, just as a normal split carcass, we saw that really there wasn't much difference between even the purebreds and the crossbreds. But when we did the fabrication, we saw that um, with the sim, sim angus and the red wagyu, I believe, they carried more muscle, say, in the chuck and the round. Um, so they added a lot more retail yield compared to the purebred um, jersey. So we were able to add value in that system, in that um, way. So we actually evaluated, okay, what if we sold these cattle on a wide basis, on a, a grid basis, um, or what if we were selling just um, a retail product? And, and it's very interesting to see that, you know, okay, well, if you raise all those cattle to the same live weight, Okay, it's it's not really different uh, what kind of price you're going to get, um, except maybe you have a dairy discount on the purebreds, right? Um, but then on the grid, we saw that we actually had improved marbling from our crossbreeding. Actually, the the beef sired beef sired cattle had um, better marbling. I believe we achieved low prime for average uh, an average marbling score for our. Um, Angus sired ones and then the red wagyu and also known as a kushi and uh, sim angus sired crosses I believe were high choice and then our jerseys on average were just average choice um, and for those that don't know dairy cattle can deposit some pretty good marbling Holsteins and jerseys in particular so Average choice was pretty good for these cattle, I mean, as an average, but we saw that we actually improved it with um, crossbreeding with a beef sire. So that was quite interesting. So actually we did have, we had a greater value on the grid for our beef sires compared to our, our, our purebred jerseys anyways. So again, we were seeing that we were adding value. One of the biggest shockers maybe was, was actually how much um, product we got back in the end and what were the differences. Um, we saw that maybe uh, the yield grade equation doesn't necessarily uh, estimate retail yield as well as some like to believe, particularly with jerseys. Um, so we did see that the, um, the value of those cattle actually would decrease um, when we were selling retail product just because there wasn't as much retail product there. But um, those cattle um, that carried a little bit more muscle like the Simangus and the Red Wagyu, they also had that quality uh, grade premium, but they also carried um, more muscle and more meat in the end. So we were able to see that they carried a little bit more value compared to the purebreds as well. So in the end, we were actually improving the value of those animals. And then from other claims, we saw that the Simangus and Red Wagyu cattle were more tender than the 
Angus sired and uh, Jersey sired cattle. Um, we actually saw that tenderness was improved throughout 14 days of postmortem aging. We actually wet aged steaks, I believe, until 28 days. There was a little bit of a decrease to about 21, but it wasn't significant. So up to 14 days, if people are thinking about aging their beef, it's a pretty good um, time period. Um, and then obviously there's differences in uh, the fatty acid profile of those cattle um, as well. And maybe that's one reason that people actually seek out um, Wagyu, for instance. Um, so as um, you deposit marbling, obviously you're depositing more fat within that muscle. Um, but also that fat composition, it starts to shift as well. You start to get more monounsaturated fatty acids compared to the saturated fatty acids. So um, for those out there, it, monounsaturated fatty acids have um, one double bond in them, and they're actually found to be more healthy compared to just your um, saturated fatty acids. So, yeah. Good. Just, just uh, before I know Brooke's going to move on to a, to a another question i just while you were talking uh when you talk about tender then you improve tender just a, a question that i had but the baseline was already tender right like yeah yeah so that, that's a good point pedro yeah what so relative to usda's standards um what they need for a labeling claim to be considered tender they were all under that And then we, they were actually all under very tender, I believe, after seven days of postmortem aging. So we, we let those carcasses hang in the cooler for, I think, seven days before we uh-huh. fabricated them. They, they were very tender at that point. So, yeah. so yeah, cross they, increased tenderness, but the baseline is already, so it's, yes, it wasn't ju- tough, right? Jerseys are able to deposit some marbling. They are very tender. And if you ask a lot of people, they would tell you that they have an excellent um, flavor profile as well. So, and that might be partially due to their fatty acid composition as well. So um, we actually saved some of those steaks back in. Some of that were aged, I think it was 28 days. I mean, you could nearly cut them with a fork. They, they, it was very good. Okay, that's nice. So yeah, so Brooke, what what is the the other question that you have? So uh, we're kind of we're excited to have you here because mm-hmm. one question we've gotten from listeners is specifically about about the wagyu crosses and sort of what someone could expect when you cross um, with a wagyu. So could you just chat a little bit more about the wagyu specifically? What you saw as far as marbling and quality and that sort of thing when you introduced that wagyu. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so it, the answer varies a little bit or is going to depend on a few factors. And so for the Jersey crossbreeding experiment, we used red Wagyu, also known as a Kushi. So that's very different than the black Wagyu. So the Kushi or red Wagyu are known to carry a little bit more muscle relative to the black Wagyu, but then they don't deposit nearly as much marbling as the black Wagyu either. So in Japan, they have a couple different breeds, if you will, of Wagyu, um, black Wagyu, red Wagyu. Um, they have a short horn variety, I believe. And uh, there's another one over there. Maybe it's the Japanese pole, I believe, but they're, they're raised in different um, regions or prefectures over there. So they've been selected 
for differences in genetics, different things. So some may, the Japanese black, for instance, um, has been selected really hard or really strongly for marbling ability. And then there's some, some um, prefectures that are more extreme than others. Um, so for instance, like the Kobe um, prefecture, I mean, a lot of people probably heard of Kobe beef. What is that? Well, that's technically Kobe beef is only beef raised in the Kobe prefecture. So there, there's um, drastic differences in the genetic potential between what actually gets classified as Wagyu. And I may be a little rusty on it, but if you look up the, the classifications of what qualifies for Wagyu in the United States, I think it's got to be like around 47 or 49%. Um, if you check out the American Wagyu Association's uh, requirements on that. So um, genetics can differ very um, considerably between those cattle. And like I said, um, the red Wagyu performed quite well. It improved marbling when we crossed them with uh, the jerseys. Um, they actually added more muscle relative to the Angus and then um, sometimes more or similar to our Simangus treatment. Um, obviously, you have to take some of that with a grain of salt because you only have so many sires within each breed. So is it representative? Um, hard to say sometimes, but um, yeah. And they carry, sometimes they carry um, a different fatty acid profile, um, more um, polyunsaturated fatty acids as well. So those are really beneficial as well. Um, so it makes the fat a little bit softer as well. Um, we actually did some, another one of my projects for um, my PhD was looking at marbling development. And we used black Wagyu to crossbreed with our university cattle, which are a Sim Angus um, based herd. So we actually investigated marbling there and those cattle um, marbled extremely well. And we actually had two different Wagyu sires and we saw differences between both the Japanese black Wagyu sires there. So there, there's differences in marbling potential within the Wagyu breed that, that can be quite extreme. For instance, I think when we harvested those cattle, um, our high marbling Wagyu, I think we had low, low primes on average. Um, and then it was only high choice for our, what we termed our high growth Wagyu sire. So there's differences just within the black Wagyu um, just based on sire. So just like any of your other beef breeds, you have to pay attention to what is their genetic potential. Look at EPDs and stuff like that. That That's very nice. I didn't know about this. Like we hear Wagyu. I mean, I, I've seen the, the Akawushu one, the red one and the black one. That's like, okay, their color different. But I, I didn't know about all of like the specific and there, and I hear about Wagyu. I never thought about having different Wagyu's in Japan and things like that, but that's, that's good to hear. Uh, I've heard before about the Kobe beef that the Kobe is technically just a Kobe produced in Japan. Uh, and I don't, I've maybe someplace they, they sell like a Kobe type or whatever. They try to rename that. Uh, but it's, it's very interesting that you were talking about the differences even within the breed. And I think we've had this conversation before, Jared, uh, like in all crossbred in general, sometimes it's not the breed, like the, it's a bull 
has a greater effect than the breed itself, like like what you just mentioned, right? When you're talking about yeah. crossbreeding, uh, it's a lot of it's. I won't say that's more a bull, but the bull has a much like has a very important role instead of because people ask what is the best breed. Yeah. Well, yep. Yeah, that's when I have that conversation, people say, oh, what breed should I crossbreed with? Uh, for example, with the, the beef on dairy, what breeds best? Um, and everyone's got their own opinion, and I, I don't want to take sides, really. Um, however, you have to be able to complement or it, it ultimately depends on which, what you're trying to produce. And um, there's some bulls that excel in certain traits versus others within their own breed. So it's selecting the for the traits that you want and not just one trait in particular, but obviously you want to have a well-rounded bull, but make sure that they excel in the things that are important. So for instance, with the beef on dairy, we know that we need to add muscle to those dairy animals. Um, we want to add some growth. We don't want to sacrifice some marbling. So we're selecting for beef bulls that excel in their growth traits Maybe uh, considering cavities as well, we, we need to have live calves, don't want to have dystocia issues on those dairies. Um, but then ribeye area, a lot of breeds have uh, indicator for muscling ability as ribeye area and then marbling ability as well. So um, just select bulls that are in the top uh, percent for those traits. Um, and that'll ultimately complement that uh, dairy animal quite well. That's nice. Uh, and just to go back a little bit on, on the marbling study that you did. So what are the things that you think that's driving this marble development? Can you just go like genetics, nutrition? Uh, how how do I get, a, or is there any like age of the animal effect? Like does the animal has to be at certain age to, to reach maximum marble potential, something like that? Yeah, those are great questions, Pedro. And you kind of, you kind of mentioned just about all of them there. I mean, there's a lot of factors, whether it's age, nutrition, um, time on feed, um, genetics, um, all those play a role. And in this study, we looked at different genetics. We had uh, Angus sires versus some Wagyu sires, two different Wagyu sires, one that was selected more for growth um, and another that was selected for marbling. And we saw differences um, in performance where, the high marble or high growth Wagyu actually was able to grow just to almost keep up with the Angus, I'd say. No differences there. Um, these were our high marbling Angus that we selected for. Um, and while the high marbling Wagyu didn't grow quite as fast, they were able to deposit more marbling um, at a smaller size already because we actually harvested those cattle. We harvested them in either two endpoints. One, either when the um, was a similar days on feed. So because those Wagyu, the high marbling Wagyu grew slower, they were much smaller um, compared to the, the heavier Angus or the growthy Wagyu. So even at a smaller final weight, they had more marbling already. But then when we allowed them all to reach the same final weight, they even had much more because they were allowed to have that extra time um, eat you know, eating more calories to put on more fat. So um, there's definitely um, some influence from all those factors. Um, we looked at a couple different um, genet uh, genes. I believe 
probably about 40 different genes that we know are associated with um, fat development, if you will. So in the development of fat, you have these progenitor cells that are deciding, okay, what am I going to grow up into? And so we wanted to select for or measure genes that said, okay, we're going to go become fat cells, intramuscular fat cells that ultimately grow up and give us marbling in our steaks. So we looked at that. We looked at genes that um, represent division. So these cells, when, when the animals developing, I mean, these cells are all replicating. So it has a bunch of them and it can grow and eventually say, I'm going to go be a fat cell. So then we look for genes that say, okay, I'm going to go be a fat cell. So we track these different genes. We looked at other genes that are associated with um, fatty acid synthesis. So in, in fat, we have fatty acids, just particular chemical structures that need to be built. So we looked at the genes that are associated with that. And then you got to put those fatty acids together to make a triglyceride. Okay, well, fat cells are filled with triglycerides. So we looked at different transporters and all the genes that um, are needed for that makeup. And we actually looked at some that break them down as well. And um, it's surprising that you we actually, well, we biopsied these cattle I believe five different times as they were growing throughout from weaning onto finishing or until we slaughtered them. So I believe from seven months until whenever we slaughtered them, which kind of ranged from maybe 14 months to I think the oldest one was about 19 months. Um, we saw similar patterns, I would say, for the most part in the development of the marbling. However, one thing that we did see is that the master regulator, the one gene that kind of regulates all of fat development, started a little bit sooner for our high marbling Wagyu. So that was interesting. There's a couple other genes that had some interesting differences. So we're actually going to um, try to develop another study here, hopefully in the near future, that we'll get started to answer some more questions. But we saw that the upregulation of our master regulator um, occurred shortly around the time that these cattle started um, their finishing ration. So we had them on a growing diet for about four months. Um, so a lot of corn silage, I believe the diet was maybe like 55% corn silage. So kind of just on a growing ration um, before we switched them over to their finishing ration. And once we did that, they, they really started depositing the marbling at, based on what the gene expression would tell us. Now we didn't do any serial slaughter to confirm this, but based on the genetic expression, um, we would assume that. So, um, so there are differences there. Um, it, it's maybe very subtle at this point from what we saw, because uh -huh. like I said, the pattern seems very similar in many cases, but um, it seems like those high marbling like you started just a little bit sooner. Um, and there may be some other genes in the background that may help, or may have caused this. So we're hoping to have another study here in the near future to uh, hopefully confirm some of this. And uh, we're actually thinking about um, raising some of these cattle out to older ages because over in Japan, they it's typical for them to raise their Wagyu cattle to 27 or 30 months of age. Well, in the U.S., our production systems are so different that we're able to finish cattle anywhere from 12 to 16 months of age. So for example, in this study, 
that we're, we've been discussing, uh, cattle were only 14, 19 months at the oldest. So there's a lot of potential here, there that we um, weren't able to unlock yet. So we're, we're curious, um, how much does it change as um, we allow these cattle to stay on feed a little bit longer, achieve a greater age, um, try to set uh, some different um, treatments up in there, but it'll be exciting to see what else we can learn. That's that's pretty cool, and, and there, there's not a lot of people willing to do that just because it takes a lot of time to finish the study. But, yes. but it, it, it's there is one feedlot here in the valley that they are they have a big project and they they're crossing uh, wagyu with hostings, and they they are usually killing their animals over 24 months of age because they are really looking to mimic the the Japanese. Uh, what they are doing there, but that's yeah. that's that's pretty cool. Uh, more questions, yeah. Brooke? Yeah, I just have one more question for you. Uh, and I, one thing you said in the last episode kind of sat with me because it's very true. Is kind of expect things to go wrong when you do research. So could you kind of maybe discuss a little bit of the difficulties you had um, doing the crossbred study um, or the wagyu study and things that you kind of learned for next time? <laughs> um well there's always challenges um sometimes maybe cattle go off feed for instance i noticed I, you guys might experience that with the heat um i know <coughs> one of the years when we were feeding the jerseys we had a number of the i want to say it was the purebred jerseys they just they already have a lower feed intake but they they kind of wanted to go off feed on us a little bit. So that was a bit of a challenge. So, I mean, trying to get them their intake back up and keep them growing it was a challenge for us. Um, uh, some other challenges. I mean, we raise those cattle in a research setting. So sometimes um, for how long they're on feed can be a challenge. Um, they're on a lot on concrete for a while. So there's obviously challenges with that. You want to take the best care of those cattle. So getting them to their um, final endpoint can be tough sometimes. Um, but yeah. um, sometimes <laughs> cattle do stupid stuff. But I, I don't know if it's a dairy, dairy uh, things. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes they, yeah, they do some funny stuff. My question that I have, like, because you're talking about, and and it's totally not totally, but kind of anecdotal in my opinion. Um, but I don't have the numbers on that. Do you think that dairy breeds, in your case, the Jersey, they had more locomotion issues than the crosses? I uh, just thinking loud here because in our case, we see sometimes our hostings who have more locomotion problem than the. I mean, that's the first group of cattle that we are feeding. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just curious of that if you have seen that i don't I, I wouldn't say say that i really noticed a difference i i think the purebreds are obviously a little bit frailer in structure mm -hmm. but it, it's obviously important once you to consider the sire as well in those crossbreeding decisions that you're selecting a bull that um has proper feet and leg structure as well um we have some we're looking at a uh, cross crossbreeding um, some beef bulls with um, Holstein 
cows here at uh, Michigan State right now, actually wrapping it up. And I really wouldn't say that we noticed um, difference in their um, locomotion. Um, and these guys are right near the end for slaughter. So not that I can say. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just something that I was thinking today. Like we've, I was noticing that the very few, like one or two animals that we had to pull out because of commotion structure was, they were hostings, but I just curious. And, yeah. And that's a good question. I, I think that probably needs to be addressed maybe with some research Um, there where I'm at. I mean, we have a lot of um, producers that feed cattle in confinement. So there are a number of people that feed cattle on um, slats. So with Holsteins, um, they just require a lot of time on feed, a longer period of time on feed just because the, um, the management structure, they're raised from calves. So that offers a lot of stress on those joints, for instance, um, which can lead to problems down the road. And um, there we're raising cattle to heavier weights all the time. Um, we really don't have great numbers on some of these Holsteins that are achieving 1500 pounds. Mm -hmm. Do they need more space? Um, are they stepping on each other? We don't have some of that information. And I think that trickles over into some of the cross um, breeding as well. But part of that is management, um, depending how those cattle are grown. Are they on a high energy diet? Are they, you know, calf feds or are they maybe yearlings that were on a lower plane of energy plane, maybe on pasture before that allowed them to grow such a large frame that they have to be 1500 1700 pounds um so just before they're finished so it, there's differences but there there's um there's uh questions out there that we don't have the answers for yet yeah job security that's good yeah. <laughs> uh brooke any any final uh question Nope, that's all I have for him is there anything that I cut you off Jared that you would like to mention before we finished up no, I, I, I don't know. It's if you guys have any other questions. <laughs> no, we, we, I mean, I just appreciate your time and, and being here with us today. It's we've, I mean, I've learned a lot uh, and, and a lot of things that I had no idea. I'm, I just appreciate you taking the time and, and being with us. I hope our listeners is, is enjoying this as much as, as I am, as I imagine Brooke is as well. Uh, so thank you very much for, for being with us again. Uh, same as we did the last time, how can uh, our followers or listeners uh, find your, your work? Yeah, if they want to look me up, Jared Jaborek, um with MSU Extension, Michigan State University Extension. Um, they can find my profile page online. There they'll find any related extension articles I've written. Um, They'll find my contact information if they want to get a hold of me via phone or if they want to get a hold of me via email. Happy to talk about beef on dairy crossbreeding, uh, share the information that I know. If they're interested in Wagyu as well, I'm always happy to talk about that, have a little experience with that. So I look forward to any questions that they may have. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, if if you're listening to us and want to, to hear more about Jared's uh, career, just go back to our previous podcast. It, it was very nice. He talked about, a lot about his, his development, personal development, professional as well. Uh, thank you very much, Jared. Thank you, Brooke. Uh, just appreciate you guys being uh, here today. If you're listening and want to uh, know more about our podcast, uh, all of this information is in the description of this episode. 
as well as the link to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Uh, just go there, subscribe, and you're going to receive every month uh, a newsletter with the transcript of the all of the episodes and some updates that we have from our, our research here. So thank you very much. And remember, it's always a good time for a cattle call. A cowboy is singing this lonesome cattle call.